Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, and welcome once again to History Dweeps. I am Tim, and welcome to our podcast today. The topic of our podcast today is the Mad Bomber, George Metesky who uh, terrorized New York City back in the 1950s um, over a period of 16 years uh, by planting bombs around the city. And uh, we'll get, and we'll talk about all of his dastardly deeds. But first, let me introduce um, my colleague, um, the most dangerous man in podcasting today, the very honorable Colonel Charles Beauregard Hawkwaters III, affectionately known as Southern Gentleman. How are you today, Colonel? Well, Timmy, I'm fine today, but you know I'm doing this podcast under protest. Why is that? Why are you protesting? Well, we, you know we have a, uh, we took a poll. Yes. And uh, Baker clearly won. Okay. He was heads and shoulders, he was heads and shoulders and paws above the other people. Yeah. Well, let's explain a little bit for most of our listeners. We have a, we have two Facebook pages, right? We have the uh, History Dweebs Facebook page in which we post a lot of uh, this day in history type of things and interesting stories, which is cool. Uh, and then we have another pod, uh, we have another Facebook page called the History Dweebs Podcast page, and we encourage all of you to join that. But we got a cool group there, and so um, we were discussing some ideas on what topic we were going to cover today. So we put a poll out and. Uh, and Rutabaker won, fair well, <laughs> The topics um, that were posted, uh, the winner of those that I posted was the day, our topic today, which is the Mad Bomber. Now, somebody uh, posted, uh, threw another name into the, tossed another hat into the ring of your dog, Rutabaker. They wanted to hear more about the dog. Yeah, but um, see, he is not of any historical significance. Rutabaker is the only dog in in the west side of Cincinnati right now known to have killed a bear by himself. Well, when you can get some documentation of that, you can bring it back. But until then, uh, he did win. But, you know, you kind of um, you were kind of screwing around with democracy there because you got your whole family involved and you paid them to vote. My family is uh, members of the group and they exercised their their freedom and voted. Yeah, well, I took it to the rules committee, namely me, and it was decided that um, we were not going to do a podcast on your dog. However, uh, for those who really want to know about your dog, we'll dedicate the final five minutes of this podcast so you can talk 
all you want about Rudy for five minutes, but after we talk about the Mad, uh, mad Bomber. But before we do that, uh, Colonel, do you have any shout-outs? Um, I, you know, I do have a couple shout-outs, uh, Timmy. Um, we'd like to, uh, our good, good dear friend, uh, Charlie, and fellow podcaster, we'd like her to know that uh, we are just foremost in our thoughts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Charlie, we're thinking about you. Um, and Charlie, Charlie is, a, as I said, another podcaster. She's run, she runs the Unblocked yeah, podcast. That's a great podcast. It is. If you haven't listened to it, you really ought to give it a shot. If, so many, you know, what I found is so many of these people, so many of these people, so many of our the people that follow our page, they are they're podcast. They they're just podcast people. There's two types of people I think in the world. There's podcast people like my wife doesn't listen to podcasts. Right, Mrs. Colonel, she would not listen to one of our podcasts to me. Uh, well, I can understand. <laughs> I can understand but, that. Yeah. I but, believe she's tired of hearing me. But um, you know, um, interesting say because I was reading an article that you know at least fifty uh, percent of people listen to at least one podcast now. No kidding. Yeah. So it's a, the medium is starting to starting to uh, you know get into the mainstream now. But yeah, mostly just uh, you know the cool people listen mostly to the podcast. Cool people. Yeah. Now, now, Charlie, you know you mean and uh, mostly mean to me most of the time, but. Uh, but, you know, what think about it. Now, the other one, we got a special shout-out. A very special one. And you know, Timmy, we got uh, one of our, on, on our podcast page that, that chimes in now and again, is Kim Taylor. Yeah, it's Kim. Sure. Um, I ain't giving Kim a shout-out because she didn't vote for Rutabago. <laughs> um, Kim but, likes history, though. She's, she's, she's really a history buff. She does like history. She's from um, Beaver Lick, Kentucky. Which is an interesting. Well, I think that's where she lives. I don't think she's from there. Well, she she lives Beaverlick, Beaverlick, Kentucky. Um, she owns a pair of shoes, though. Um, has her own teeth. <laughs> she claims. Um, she posted a picture saying she had her own teeth, but she is not getting a shout out today. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is not a shout out, Kim. If you're no, listening, we are getting giving a shout out to her little boy Ryan. Mm-hmm. Um, whose birthday is the end of this month, the last day of the month. And he occasionally listens to the not-so-bad parts of the podcast. Oh, so she censors it? Um, Kim Taylor's son, Ryan. Right. So she, she lets him, but she lets him listen to some of it. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. um, so she, so anyway, Ryan, we hope you have a good birthday. We hope that uh, your mom and daddy get you what you deserve. Um, if they don't, you let the colonel know. I'll, I'll, we'll dig into the history dweebs fund up here. We'll send you something down there. Yeah, thanks for listening, Ryan. Yeah, Ryan, be be a good boy. Be a, be. A, and I know they got a son and a daughter, and uh, she she'll post some pictures and uh, very just just adorable kids. She mm-hmm. she posted on Easter. She changed her profile picture. Little boy standing in front of a tree with his mama got a kilt on. They're, they they've got a very strong Scottish heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, always to Lady Beverly. We uh, we Lady Beverly is just, just travels along with that British stiff upper lip to me. No matter what's going on with her, she's always <clears throat> always hanging in there. Um, and and I'm gonna give a shout out only because I've noticed one local person. Mm-hmm. That we have that listens to us, um, that gets involved from time to time on the uh, 
page, um, and she, I believe, she posted uh, posted you posted a poo chart for you. <laughs> yeah, um, that's Trisha Hillard. Yeah. Um, well, actually, uh, we have a couple. We have a few local listeners, and John's a local listener. Oh, John's a mm-hmm. local one too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Scott, but one thing I wanted to say about Kim Taylor is that her daughter made these really cool Easter history dweebs Easter eggs. That, oh, Caitlin. Uh, yeah, Her Caitlin. daughter Caitlin, Caitlin, yeah. Yes, and they were adorable. Um, I think mine should have had a little bit more hair. But other than that, she got the devil, like, perfect. She got the devil, perfect. I had those horns sharpened up. Um, so it that's is so nice to do a podcast without Brandy here. For those of you who are missing Brandy, we're sorry. She's uh, taking a vacation week this week. Probably, uh, you know. Is she drunk texting you right now? Yeah, she's she drunk. She does that to she, me, too. She, yeah, I mean, she gets drunk, man, early in the morning. I'm like 10 in the, cl- 10 yeah, in the morning. She's, it's 1 she, in the afternoon. She's, yeah, she's three south. sheets to the window yeah. already. Mm-hmm. She, I don't know what's wrong with that girl. Got her kids. She, yeah. You know what? She probably, I, and, and the devil doesn't follow society's rules. No, no. She sent me a text. I know she's drunk. She's probably driving at the same time. Probably. You know, she's probably she with her feet. <laughs> Probably, I don't know what's wrong with the woman. I, she, well, but and and I can't figure out why these other. You know why these other women like you, Tim? I don't know why. I don't know. Oh, I'm hoping you had an answer. No, no, I I, I I don't have a clue. I mean, I, Team Colonel got like two people on it. One's Rudebaker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Rudebaker and Scott. That's about it. <laughs> Rudebaker and Scott. But that's really all I need. Yeah, I miss uh, seeing Scott this weekend. I was hoping to uh, catch up with him, but the timing didn't work out. But he was in Ohio this weekend. Yeah, he was. um, And I had the boys all in town um, and was not able to get out. But we did get Scott some—we led him to Skyline Chili. Yeah, and he said he's going to make another trip back in the summer, so hopefully we'll catch up with him. And I was working on Saturday and only had a little window where I could— with him, so when they will. But that's all I can. That's all I can hit off the top of my head, Tim. I, I didn't I forgot to write my shout outs down, but I did want to get Ryan a happy birthday shout out and the Caitlin. Thank you for the eggs and yeah, that was really cool, Caitlin. And Timmy, you got any over there? Uh, just my mom. Oh well, who, of course uh, I was saving Dottie for last. Yeah, she's been feeling bad, but um, she's starting to feel better again. She's yeah, she can't get over this flu or whatever it keeps coming back is it a stomach virus or no around? i don't think i think it's in congestion it's you know i I'm, bronchitis uh, we'll get on to that later but i renee i wish renee get the laryngitis that's what i'm trying to get <laughs> renee to get the laryngitis uh and brandy too oh the devil immune to all that stuff uh, yeah she's, i know she's got all those uh you know unless you drive a stake through that woman's heart <laughs> she ain't gonna she ain't nothing gonna happen she'll be back with us next well maybe not next podcast but next week definitely okay um no i you know just our regular shout outs we thank you all for listening and and if you um haven't joined the uh, history dweebs uh the podcast Facebook group yet? Please do so because we got a cool group there and post all kind of cool stuff and it's a nice little community. So yeah, love, and to, it, love to have you. It is a nice community. And it, Timmy, now I'm, you know I'm a little disappointed though, and I posted this on the podcast page. Do you got a stalker? No, neither do I. I know Brandy does. I, I would have thought that after you know we got five thousand followers, five thousand likes. After. after all this, yeah, somebody stalked me. I know. I thought the, we the like, price of payment fame would be somebody stalking the colonel, and ain't nobody stalking the colonel. I know. We, we have to keep working hard to promote the show. We have um, 
this this month will be will be over ten thousand downloads. So that's you know that's pretty good. How um, how out of all those people ain't nobody talking? I know you would think there'd be someone out of ten thousand that would be interested yeah. in this, but apparently not. Okay, so um, if you haven't joined the History Dweebs, the podcast page, please do so. We'd love to have you. Let's get in. Let's talk about this uh, nut job, Colonel um, George Mateski. Yeah, I don't know that he was a nut job to me. <clears throat> well, you know, in some ways I can relate to this guy um, mm. because he was a disgruntled. He was the first Occupy Wall Street guy. Yeah, kind of. He, 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 I think he had a case, but I don't know he went about, <laughs> about it the right way. Um, but, but, you know, it. You know, I don't want to get off topic too much, but the the, the George Mateski uh, became known as the Bad Bomber, and he he, he was uh, taking a uh, he was taking his this action because he felt he was wrong. Uh, he the, he had a um, he was working for Con Ed or Consolidated Edison, which is known we'll refer to as Con Ed uh, Utility Company in New York City, and he. Um, was fi- he was injured, and um, he was denied workman's compensation. He felt he was wrong, and um, he decided to express his outrage by planting bombs all over the city. So, um, you know, up to the point you start planting bombs, I'm kind of on the guy's side. <laughs> well, um, once you start blowing shit up, yeah, you, yeah. you're walking a fine line. You man. really are. You're, you're going to lose. But some- you got to admit, there's some people need to be blown up. Some places, like the cable company, Timmy. Yeah. They tell you they're going to be there at eight o'clock. It's one, two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Something needs to get blown up when you wait it all day. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you there. But yeah. um, he got a little carried away. But regardless, um, I, I can almost relate to him. Um, kind of a, on a personal note, my ex-spouse, who hopefully isn't listening because she'll get really upset, but she was injured on the job and kind of got screwed over the same way. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and um, she, you know, it cost her a lot of money, and and um, she suffered a lot of pain and stuff. And you know, when you, you know, she didn't, you know, she had, she decided to take a different path. She hasn't set bombs around the city, as far as I know. But <laughs> that's, that's probably part of a problem too. <laughs> but I mean, you can see, I can see how someone would feel wrong, if, especially if you take someone who may be a little mentally unbalanced. And then, which is about half the people I know, <laughs> right. at least. And then you know you have someone like uh, Con Edison screw over them, or at least they feel that they were screwed over. You can see how something like that happens. But let's let's get back. Let's take a step back and let's talk about this guy. And you know, Timmy, just a real quick interlude here. I just got a note from our legal department. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I and the colonel in no way advocates blowing up of stuff. Oh, okay, good. Um, I simply stated that one could feel a certain amount of empathy for a person who does blow up stuff. Yeah, especially when you you know you get really screwed over. Like apparently he did, but I think he <laughs> either way it was an overreaction. But um, <laughs> some people do that. Didn't fortunately, you know uh, the people who were injured, uh, no one were no one was killed, but there were fifteen people injured. Uh, you know, during his bombings, so they were certainly were innocent people. So it's hard to justify it. But he was kind of a piss poor bomber. Really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, really, he came right down well, to yeah, it. Couldn't even kill somebody. Well, or maybe he wasn't trying to. So I you could kill somebody with an M80. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he 
you know, in the, well, let's get into the story. So we'll talk about it. Uh, so well before there was Timothy McVeigh and the Unabomber, there was a quiet, uh, unassuming man named George Metesky. And he terrorized New York City for more than 16 years, from 1940 to 1956. And um, he got the moniker, the Mad Bomber, uh, by the New York media. And um, he planted at least, that they know of, at least 33 bombs in New York City from 1940 to 1956. And although the bombs did not kill anyone, they did injure and maim 15 people. And probably more importantly, he just created an atmosphere of terror in, in New York City. He planted these bombs, explosive devices, in theaters and train stations and uh, bus terminals and libraries uh, and in uh, offices, especially the offices of Consolidated Edison, uh, his former employer. Uh, the bombs were left in phone booths, storage lockers, restrooms in public buildings, Grand Central Station, Penn Station, Radio City Music Hall. I know you uh, enjoy going to Radio City Music Hall. I like to see a rocket now and again. I, I, I thought you did. I'm seeing you. I, I thought you were um, I had performed with the Rockettes. I thought I'd seen you on stage kicking no, your legs. No, I actually choreographed the Rockettes oh, a little I see. bit. I see. Um, the New York City Public Library, which of course is the most one of the most busy libraries in the in the country, if not the world. The Port Authority bus terminal, the RCA building, and uh, in the New York City subway. So he was all he planned these things all over the place. He also bombed movie theaters quite frequently. He didn't. He, and a lot of times it was the Lowe's Theater. I'm not sure why. Why it just uh, the Lowe's Theater seemed to be one that he because of some bitches. They were probably one of those places. You ever go to the movies and you ask for the extra butter on the popcorn? Yeah. They're already charging you eleven dollars for a bucket of popcorn. But now you do your own. Yeah, sometimes, but still, I don't believe you always get the extra butter. Now you don't get the extra butter. It's liable to get your theater blown up. You know what I don't like is the new pop machines. Like, you know, it's got, it's one machine and... And then, then you press all the buttons? Yeah. See, I like those because I like to, I like to ask Renee, what is it you want, dear? And she'll just say something straight, like, Diet Pepsi. And I like really? to get a Diet Ginger Ale. I like to get, like, Cherry three flavors, quarters. Vanilla. Throw all kinds of uh-huh. stuff in there. And then she'll taste it and say, I hate these <laughs> machines. I really, now they got them, now they have them in fast food restaurants. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, off topic. So anyway, uh, in all, uh, Metesky planted at least 33 bombs, uh, of which 22 of those bombs exploded, injuring 15 people. So there were people hurt, and so he's not, uh, you know. And I think uh, if people treat him kind of like a clown, a lot of it had to do with his effect when he was arrested. He was, there's, you know, this famous mm. picture of him in the jail cells just smiling, mm. you know, just like. So he, he, he and he wrote letters uh, to the police. He wrote letters to the newspapers. So he was kind of attention-seeking throughout this whole, whole ordeal, again, that lasted for 14 years, although most of his bombings were in uh, waves, right? They wasn't, they, he had a long stretch when he didn't do any bombings at all. And then he would do, all of a sudden, he would do, you know, six or seven in a year. So, but anyway. 
And I, I still don't get it. 33 bombs, a man plus. In New York City. I could leave 33 banana peels in different parts of Cincinnati and kill at least two people. Yeah, you would. I mean, you'd think that all, out of all those folks, yeah. out of all those uh, incidents, explosions, it's, you know, someone would die. But fortunately, no one did die, but 15 people were, were injured, as I said. So George Peter Pateski was born on November 2nd, 1903 in Waterbury, Connecticut. Now, I researched this guy because this guy, you know, we put this up in the poll when this guy was ahead at the time I started to research. And there's just not a whole lot about his uh, life. There's not a whole lot that's There's known. a lot about his crimes, but not a lot about him. Yeah, there's there's just not. He was just like this guy that just didn't have a, you know, he kind of did not have much history that anyone was aware of. Um, he was the youngest of three children um, who, you know, from, who were born to his parents who immigrated from Latvia. Isn't that where um, Andrew Kaufman's character was? Mm-hmm. On Latvian? Ta- yeah, yeah, on Taxi. Um, so he had two older sisters. Um, there's not, as I said, not much known of George's childhood other than he was a quiet, unassuming boy, a bit of a bookworm, so he was a little nerdy. Uh, he did well in school, but he didn't have a whole lot of friends. Now, there's no information about his relationship with his parents, so we don't know whether there was any indication of abuse or neglect or anything like that. Um, usually, you know, like when we do these serial killers, we got all tons of, you know, background information on them. Um, but George, just, I mean, they're just if it's there, I don't, I don't know where to find it. Um, he was very close to his sisters. In fact, he ended up living with them as adults. Now, George never married, nor did his sisters. So, hmm. Yeah, I don't know what that... Maybe there was a little uh, hanky-panky going on in the family there, yeah, didn't Yeah, or maybe they just were very, you know... There wasn't close, handsome people. Close-knit. Well, I don't know. I've never seen his sisters, but, you know, he was... Well, I've seen him. They couldn't have been too good-looking. <laughs> Not bad. I don't know. So, but George never married, and there's no indication that he had any significant romantic relationships. Now, he may have, but it's just not documented. After graduating from high school in 1922, this is right after the First World War, McKeskey joined the U.S. Marines, and he served as a specialist uh, electrician uh, at the United States Consulate in Shanghai. So, you know, he met some Chinese women over there, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Got the web feet and all back in the 20s. <laughs> Um, you think that would have put him in a better mood? Yeah, Chinese women are beautiful. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe he, um, uh, but I don't know. We don't know what his uh, love life was like. We're just speculating. But when he returned home, he went to work as a mechanic for a subsidiary of Consolidated Edison, and we will refer to henceforth as ConEd, a utility company in the greater New York City area. And he lived in Waterbury, Connecticut, with his two unmarried sisters. So, brother, old maids. Yeah, old maids. Um, I had a friend who worked for Con Ed. No, I have a friend whose husband worked for, he still works for Con Ed. And he, were, he was working on um, 9-11. Oh. Can you imagine how much overtime he put in? Oh, I bet there was I mean, he worked like, bastards, yeah, yeah. They worked a, a great deal. Um, they had to work crazy hours. Uh, but anyway, in 1931, 
George was working on a generator, uh, as a generator wiper. I don't know what they, I guess they wipe off generators, yeah. I guess, at the company's Hell, Hell's Gate generating plant when a boiler backfired and produced a blast of hot gas. Much like the devil does. <laughs> All the time. Podcasting. Yeah. yeah, when we podcast. <laughs> um, the blast knocked McKesky down. And the fumes filled his lungs, choking him. Now, that accident left him disabled, and after t- collecting 26 weeks of sick pay, Con, uh, Con Ed fired him to let him go. All those sons of bitches. <laughs> yeah. Didn't yeah. have no workers' comp back then. And, no, no. Well, he did, but he was denied workman's comp. Um, and um, now, what he claimed was that. And this was disputed by Con Ed, was that the accident led to him uh, developing pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And that, in turn, developed into... The consumption. Yeah, tuberculosis, um, which was, yeah, I guess, still around. Well, I mean, it's still around today, but it was still a little bit more prevalent in the 40s and 30s, I mean. Um, so a claim of workman's comp was denied because he waited too long to file it, according to the report. Poor bastard. Yeah. I had one time, one time when we first, when I when I was first married, we bought a house, our first house, and my wife was trying to put a uh, washer on the on the on the faucet, mm-hmm. and I said, "Now look," and I told her to get away, and I started screwing with. It. I said, "The one thing we never do, the two things we never touch, is electricity and plumbing." And as soon as I let the words, those words get out of my mouth, water shoots straight, <laughs> straight up in the air. I mean, it's, it's sitting in the ceiling, right? <laughs> and, you know, the first thing I do, of course, is put my finger in <laughs> right? Put your just, finger in the dike, Timmy. <laughs> so we're scrambling. It's like on a holiday weekend. You know, I'm trying to turn off this water. We just moved in the house. I had no mm-hmm. idea where the, you know, where I could turn the water off. But anyway, I get this, finally get a hold of this um a plumber, right? He worked for his company. And he said, well, you know, it's late at night. And, you know, I said, I got to have water, right? And I have to have water. It's a holiday weekend. He said, well, I'll come over and see what I can do. Now, he came over and he spent about 20 minutes and he charged me $500. <laughs> and I told him, I said at the time, I said, you know what? I know you're screwing me. And he, oh, he, and he said, here's my card. If there's a problem, call me directly. Don't call the company. Yeah. So, so and, you know, and I, I told him, I said, I know you're, you're screwing me. But anyway, he had turned off the hot water heater. And he said, um, uh, he's getting ready to leave. And he said, well, I can tell you what, I can light your hot water heater for you again if, if you like. So I said, yeah, sure, I'm paying you $500. Yeah. The least you can do. Yeah, I'd like to have some hot water. That'd be nice. <laughs> anyway, he went down and yeah, got, uh, tried to turn on the, uh, or tried to light the the pump, and that damn thing blew up in his face <laughs> and knocked him back, singed his eyebrows. See, you got your $500 worth. Oh, my me. God. I was laughing so hard. He was okay. But it was like, yeah, bastard, dude. Well, I'll show you. You know, I worked for a staffing company years for years, Timmy. I was when I was doing some headhunting. And we had a, uh, had a gentleman that, uh, it's a workers' comp story. Mm-hmm. I got the two of them. This gentleman, he was he was a truckloader. He worked in the warehouse. Now this is back when the cases of pop came on the wooden crates. Oh yeah, I remember that. And uh, in the summertime, they let you wear shorts in the warehouse because it was it was hot. It's hot, right? And uh, this gentleman decided to go commando. Uh oh. This particular day. Uh oh. And he lifted up a crate, 
and he stacked it on some other crates about four high, and he had to kind of just get on his tippy toes a little bit to get it up there. Mm-hmm. And he set it down. We had some loose baggy shorts on, Timmy. Uh-oh. He caught Captain Tallywhacker between the wooden crates Ooh. of, of Ooh. cases of Pepsi as he set it down. Ooh. Now, this was quite uncomfortable. <laughs> I can imagine. But what was, what was one of the funniest things I've ever read was his workman's comp report. <laughs> because he apparently acquired a large hemoglobin <laughs> on the tip of his penis. We should be grateful. Well, I believe I believe the term is hematoma, but he put hemoglobin. <laughs> but Timmy, they asked the man to fill out the form, and it said... Did he have to draw a little photo, a little picture? <laughs> what action did you take? And the man said, I screamed. <laughs> I could understand that. I can understand And that. we had one dumb son bitch. He broke his back sweeping the dock backwards. He was walking. He was walking backwards he and fell off the dock? backwards and fell off a 12-foot dock. Yeah. And broke his back. Now, yeah. for those, you shouldn't even have to pay work. Right, right, right. That's, that's just Darwinism yeah. coming into play. Yeah, that's yeah, just uh, but stupid. When, but when I read the report, it said, what action? What they mean was, you know, did you ice it? Did right, you right. Do, what I action screamed. was taken? He just put down, I screamed. <laughs> that's, you know. It's the only get, reasonable action you could take. Yeah, right? yeah. For the first five minutes, anyway. <laughs> yeah. He had a huge hemoglobin. Yeah, well, um, he so poor George. Uh, he was de- he, he he appealed his denial for workman's comp three times, and it was uh, also rejected all three times. The last one was in 1936. Uh, so George developed a hatred for the company's attorneys and also for some of his coworkers who he felt perjured themselves in the compensation case. You know, he, so he was a disgruntled former employee, right? Yeah. He felt he'd been wrong, and the company uh, screwed him over. But So the weird thing is, this happened in 1936. His appeals ran out in 1936. The first bomb that he detonates or tries to detonate is in 1940. So he waited four years before, you know, I guess he's seeming with anger over these, you know, over the situation. Now, on November 16, 1940... Uh, he left a bomb, a homemade bomb, on a windowsill at Con Ed's power plant in Manhattan. It was a crude, sh- uh, the bomb, first bomb was crude, a uh, short-length bra- bra- uh, brass pipe filled with gunpowder and uh, enclosed in a wooden box. And he left it on the windowsill, and it was found before it could go off. It was wrapped in a note, no, 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 block letters. It was like, um, you know, some of his his um, notes were like out, like out, out of the old crime stories where they cut out things cut out from, from the magazine. Oh, yeah. You know. I leave those at home sometimes. <laughs> but some of them were handwritten. And um, all of his, this first letter where it just said, Con Addison Crooks, this one is for you. And it was signed FP. So... All his letters were signed FP, and we'll get in. You'll talk about what that means later. Um, so, um, but so some of the investigators of this first bomb, they thought maybe it was an intentional dud because 
had it exploded, the note would have exploded. That's true. <laughs> no, you know, it would be no sense leaving kind of a note. Kind of pointless to leave a note that's going to blow up and burn and, up. Exactly. So um, that was the first bomb. The second bomb um, occurred, a second attempt occurred on September 6, 1941. It was very similar. Uh, it was found lying on the street about five blocks away from Con, Ed head, uh, Con Ed's headquarters in Manhattan. Uh, this one had no note, and it was also a dud. Now, police theorized that the bomber may have uh, spotted a cop and dropped the bomb before setting uh, the fu- its fuse. Now, that's September 1941. Of course, on December 7, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, the U.S. Mil- in, uh, military installation in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and then the world was the beginning of World War II. Shortly after the Japanese attacked um, Pearl Harbor, um, the p- police received a, a letter from George. It stated, I will make no bomb units for the duration of the war. My patriotic feelings have made me decide this. Later, I will bring Con Edison to justice. They will pay for their dastardly deeds. Sign FP. Well, so he, sounds like a great American to me, Timmy. Yes, he using the words dastardly deeds, mm-hmm. so he's very well spoken. Yeah. Dastardly deeds. Yeah. Hey, you know, I keep picturing Boris and Natasha, you know, little Boris <laughs> yeah. with a little bomb and he lights it and runs away. <laughs> yeah, the, like, the round the yeah, little bomb round bomb. Like, yeah. bomb. So being a man of his word, uh, George planted no bombs between 1941 and 1951, so 10 years. Oh, that's a long so, time. Yeah. And the weird thing is, you know, the war only lasted until 1945, so he, he gave him a little extra time. He was a planner. He was a planner, Timmy. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's w- walking around with all this anger for, I mean, it had to be just miserable. But uh, during that time... Well, look at the devil. She walked around with anger Well, every that's day, true. She, she has anger issues. That's mm-hmm. correct. Now, instead of sending uh, bombs, though, he would send a lot of crank letters and postcards to police stations, to newspapers, to private citizens, <laughs> and to Con Anderson. So, was he sending them postcards like, is your refrigerator running or something like that? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, he would always sign him FP, and it was always, he would always be, you know... Uh, you know, talking about his, his, the uh, anger he felt toward Con Edison, his former employer. Now, investigators started studying these uh, messages, and they were penciled. Uh, the ones that didn't, you know, were, were not the cutouts, were in block letters. And uh, the W was a little weird, the G's were a little weird, and the Y's were a little odd shaped. Um, so they thought by that he may have had an European education. Um, so that was one of the early theories that he was European. Now, George did not return to bombing, actual bombing, uh, until 1951. That was 10 years after his last bomb, that the, the one he found on, on the street a few blocks from Con Ed headquarters uh, that didn't explode. Uh, um, but on March 29, 1951, he planted his third bomb. This one was a little bit more sophisticated than the earlier bombs. Uh, and it was also the first bomb to actually explode. The explosion started, uh, startled commuters in Grand uh, Central Terminal, but it didn't injure anyone. If you've ever been in Grand Central Station... Never have I mean, been. Uh, it is crazy busy, as you can imagine. It's like Grand Central Station, right? Yeah. Uh, lots and lots of people. So it's a miracle. It, in, a bomb that went off there. It not hurt anyone. It's just really miraculous. Um he had dropped it in a sand urn uh, near the oyster bar in the terminal's lower level, but no one was hurt on that attempt. 
Um, He's now kind the, of a piss poor bomber so far. Well, so far he only had one to go off. Now he the long fear in the hearts of people. Now the police believed the long hiatus since the you know the sec- the second bomb and the third one, but the whole time between them, and the improved construction techniques of the first new bomb, this latest bomb, uh, led investigators to believe that the bomber had served in the military. So he kind of knew what he was doing. In April 1951. Uh, Mc- Kessie's next bomb exploded, again without injury, and it was in a phone booth in the New York Public Library. Uh, In August, a few months later, in August 1951, a phone booth bomb exploded with no injuries at Grand Central Station. So, you know, people were scared to use phone in in the early 1950s in New York. Um, George next planned a bomb that exploded without injury in another phone booth at the Con Ed headquarters. So, I mean, early on, they should have a pretty good idea. This guy had something against Con Ed. I mean, I'm not sure why it took so long to figure this guy out. Right. Um, he also mailed a bomb. So he was he, he actually mailed a bomb like the Unabomber, uh, which did not explode to Con Ed's headquarters in, uh, no, um, yeah, Con Ed's, Headquarters in White Plains, New York. So, and he's mailing bombs now. But on October 22nd, 1951, just a few weeks before my oldest brother's birthday, he was born, um, the New York Herald Tribune received a letter in pencil block letters stating, and I quote, bombs will continue until the uh, Consolidated Edison Company is brought to justice for their dastardly deeds against me. I have exhausted all other means I intend with bombs to cause others to cry out for justice for me. Unquote. He likes that dastardly deed. He does. He does. Um, The letter directed police, uh, also directed the police to Paramount Theater in Times Square, where a bomb was discovered and they disabled it. They also directed them to a telephone booth in Penn Station and nothing was found. So he's given them a runaround a little bit. He's messing with them. Now, on November 28, 1951, which is one month later, a coin-operated locker at the 14th Street subway station was bombed. It went off, again, without injury. So, you know, he's, you know, about five or six bombs into this thing, he hasn't heard anyone yet. In late December of 1951, uh, right before Christmas, the Herald Tribune, New York Herald Tribune, received another letter warning from George. It said, and I quote, have you noticed the bombs in your city? If you're worried, <laughs> yes, yeah, kind of hard not to. If you're worried, I'm sorry. And also, if anyone is injured, but it cannot be helped, for justice will be served. For the dastardly deeds. <laughs> I am not well, and for this, I will make the Con Edison make Con Edison sorry. Yes, they will regret their dastardly deeds. <laughs> I will bring them before the bar of justice. Public opinion will condemn them. For beware. I will place more units under theater seats in the near future, signed FP. He said units. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did indeed say unit. So, okay, so that's near Christmas, right? So in March 19th, 1952, so he took a few months off. Or enjoyed the holidays. Oh, yeah, you got to, yeah. yeah. Probably watched football playoffs and all that. But well, March he, Madness. Yeah, March Madness. So March 19th, 1952, a Bomb exploded in a phone booth at the Port Authority bus terminal again without causing any injuries. You got to think maybe he was, you know, he was. You know, I wonder if he was like intentionally trying not to hurt anyone. I, I mean, early on. I mean, I think later on, 
he gets a little bit crazier, but I think early on he may be just trying to get attention. In June, and again in December of 1952, bombs exploded in the seats at the Lexington Avenue Lowe's Theater. You know, I didn't know Lowe's Theater had been around that long, but I, I guess, didn't I guess they have been. Um, now, in the December bombing, December of 1952, it actually injured someone. This was the first time. It's about time, if you <laughs> got any any self-respecting bomber with three bombs, you'd think you'd hurt, what, need yeah. to hurt somebody. Well, this is the first time it actually hurt somebody. The person survived. Um, now, police at that point asked the newspapers not to print any more of the bomber's <clears throat> letter and try to play down the earlier bombers because they thought he was just seeking attention. Um, but the public became aware that the mad bomber, as he became known, was on the loose. So, in 1953, bombs exploded in the seats at the Radio City Music Hall and at the Capitol Theater, again, these with no injuries. A bomb again exploded near the Oyster Bar in Grand Central's uh, Terminal. Man, he, he must have something. He didn't like oysters, either. <laughs> must not have. He didn't like oysters and dances. It's the second time it, he hit that place. This time it was in a coin-operated rental locker. Again, there was no injuries. Now, an unexploded bomb was found. This is 1953. He was on a roll in 1953. An unexploded bomb was found in a rental locker at Penn Station. Penn Station being very much like Grand Central Station. It's just crazy busy. 1954, a bomb wedged between a sink and the Grand Central Station. Grand Central Terminal men's room exploded, uh, slightly injuring three men. So now he's... He, you know, he's bombing men's rooms. It would lead me to think it was a man at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so a bomb planted. A bomb was planted in a phone booth uh, at the Port Authority bus terminal. Exploded with no injuries. On November 7, 19... Oh no, we're in 1954 now. On November 7, 1954, it was Christmas time. And there was a capacity crowd at the Radio City Music Hall... They were 6,200 people to watch Bing Crosby's White Christmas. So it was a, you know, it's a holiday season. New, mm. New York City's uh, everybody all, de- all happy. Everyone the packages. got their Christmas gifts. You're right. They got the, you know, they're all in the uh, hol- uh, holiday spirit. Uh, the city is decorated. I mean, you know, it's a cool time to be in the city. So on November 5th, they had this uh, showing of Bing Crosby's White Christmas at the Radio City Music Hall. 6,200 people. And a bomb was a uh, bomb stuffed in the bottom cushion of a seat in the fifteenth row exploded, and this time it seriously injured four people in the audience. Now how in the hell you got? You know, I, I'm just gonna say this. He was a piss poor bomb maker. Well, or he wasn't trying to hurt anyone. How'd you like to be sitting there enjoying the show and have your ass blow up, Timmy? <laughs> I, would, I would not like that. I would not like that. I would like to watch the end of, you know, especially Big Crosby because I'm a big Crosby fan. I'm dreaming. Right, right, right. I, you know, I would like to, this was a good movie. I would like to watch it, but I would not like to be injured. Uh, you're right. Uh, but the explosion was muffled by someone's fat ass. No, I'm kidding. The explosion was muffled by heavy upholstery in the seats. Remember the old, the old movie Those theater old, yeah. seats? You know, these things were. Heavily now they got recliners and everything. Yeah, in the I, I know. Back in the old days, man, those things were, but the, the seats were these, oh. Anyway, um, so this, a lot of people never even heard it, you know. <laughs> the film continued. 
the field continued and he injured with the escort it down the see, I would have got a clue when people you know the the uh, attendants were pulling people out on stretchers I would probably got a yeah. clue that something's wrong you know that poor son of bitch had a, one of those hemorrhoid don- hemorrhoid donut rings he had to sit on <laughs> probably so uh, so they were as uh, they injured was escorted to the first facility's first aid room and about 50 people in the immediate area were moved to the back of the theater and that was that <laughs> Um, after the film, the following stage show concluded an hour and a half later. The police roped off 150 seats in the area where the explosion was took place. So that was all. I mean, the show must go on, I guess. Now, when they blump, do you think, you know, there was some asshole. I mean, at that point, you think he's actually, he must be actually trying to hurt people. <laughs> you you know, know, some asshole in the theater is shushing him when the bomb goes off. Probably so. <laughs> probably so. <laughs> it, wouldn't it be, you know, you're sitting in front of somebody and all of a sudden they're blown out of their seat? <laughs> or sitting, you're sitting in front of them and they get blown over the top of yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, you said, throw popcorn at them. <laughs> I didn't make Christmas worth it almost. Well, yeah, something to remember. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, going back to this, you know, remember the police asked the, the newspapers to stop printing his letters. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, you know, that might have... Um, motivated him to... To look, get more aggressive. Yeah, yeah, to get more aggressive in it uh, and to pick a larger ta- uh, uh, target. So uh, anyway, uh, in February of 1955, a bomb exploded with injuries or without injuries on the platform of the uh, Sutter Avenue s- uh, subway station in Brooklyn. In April 1955, two months later, a bomb was uh, found beneath a phone booth, or I'm sorry, a a bomb beneath a phone booth exploded at the main floor of Macy's department store with no injuries. In June of 1955, two bombs exploded without injuries at Penn Station, one in a rental locker and one in a phone booth. Man, I'm not not using the (laughs) phone booth in Penn Station. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. <laughs> We're going to the Oyster Bar. 
In July of 1955, uh, one month later, a bomb was found at Radio City Music Hall after a warning someone after a warning phone call. So someone called and said there's a bomb and. Uh, also in July, same month, at the Roxy Theater, a bomb dropped out of a slash seat <laughs> <laughs> out of the upholstery's workbench without exploding. The thing he would do, he, he would go to these theaters and he would cut a hole in the upholstery sure. and he'd yeah, put the bomb in under. there. Yeah. And you know, those, th- those seats were really thick, mm-hmm. those, those old theater seats. And these were mostly pipe bombs that he was making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so in August of 1955, a bomb exploded at the Paramount Theater in Manhattan. One patron was struck in the foot uh, by fragments and was injured. Investigators discovered a small pen knife pushed aside inside one of the seats. One of several found at the uh, seats uh, uh, at the, in the theater seats. After this bombing, so he went around the different seats and, and uh, I guess trying to figure out where he was going to put this bomb and cut holes in it. They found his knife. They theorized that the bomber had left knives behind uh, in case he was stopped and questioned. I don't know what that means. In December of 1955, a bomb exploded at the Grand Central uh, Station men's uh, men's room in a urinal. Oh, so that would not um, have been good to be in there taking a leak when that thing went off. <laughs> No one was injured, fortunately. Uh, so that brings up to ni- us up to 1956. In February of 1956, a 74-year-old men's room attendant. Now, first of all, man, I hope if I'm 74 years old, I'm not working. And if I am working, I hope I'm not a men's room attendant. Because, <laughs> yeah, that's not something I want to do. <laughs> they didn't have retirement back well, then. Well, I guess well, they had Social Security. Well, they had Social Security. Yeah, but, you know. He was just a go-getter, Timmy. Expensive to live in New York, I guess. Anyway, a 74-year-old man, uh, year old men's room attendant at Penn Station. God, what a job. <laughs> How nasty is that, man? It's not like people are coming in there leaving you tips. You got the homeless coming in there and peeing on the floor and stuff. Yeah. Taking a dump using, on the floor. Using your towels as blankets. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, he was injured when the bomb in the toilet bowl exploded. <laughs> See, now, I, raising three boys, I have had my toilet bomb before, Timmy. Yeah, so, <laughs> See, it's something you're used to. Yeah, it's not a pleasant thing. A young man had reported... What happened? A young man went to the uh, men's room attendant and, explore, and he reported an obstruction in the toilet, and the attendant tried to clear it out with a plunger... <laughs> Which, you know, that's a reasonable thing to do. You know what? And it's that moment that the whole thing clears up that you think victory. Yeah. And then it blows up. Yeah. Uh, He was uh, hit with some porcelain fragments. And I'd assume Uh, some fecal fragments. (laughs) I didn't say, but investigators found a watch frame and a wool sock. (laughs) So. Now we don't know if that was to you know belong to the bomber or just some random guy putting his sock in the, down the toilet. But washing his socks. In March, a guard at the RCA building. And again, this is a bright move. A guard and um, a guard at the RCA building in Rockefeller Center uh, discovered a piece of pipe about five inches long in the telephone booth. <laughs> a second guard thought it might be useful in a plumbing project he had at home, <laughs> and he took it home on a bus to New Jersey. Where it exploded on his kitchen table the next morning. No one was injured, though. I was thinking that thing went off on the bus. Nothing's free, Timmy. Nothing's free. 
On December 2nd, 1956, a small group of New Yorkers looking to forget their pre-holiday worries uh, filed into uh, the Paramount Movie Theater in Brooklyn. Um, this is almost like you know that what happened the year before at the uh, um, at the you know showing of uh, Bing Crosby's Right Christmas at Rockefeller Center. Uh, the some moviegoers were weighted down with Christmas packages, as we talked about. You know, they were out shopping. They decided to take in a movie for a couple hours, escape their cares. And at 5:55 p.m., a bomb ripped apart the theater. When the smoke and panic cleared, six people were injured. Three of those injury were three, three of those injuries were serious. And the bomber himself would write, uh, uh, it would by, by the hand of God that nobody was killed. Everyone knew who to blame for the attack. It was, of course, the mad bomber, or as he is known by his signature, FP. The next day, the police commissioner, Stephen P. Kennedy, ordered what he called the greatest manhunt in the history of the police department, New York Police Department, to capture the mad bomber. <clears throat> well, and here's where he had some problems, Timmy. All right. The bomber was his... Now, you might say his, his competence, his competence here, Timmy, um, it made tracing his devices nearly impossible. He was using basic stuff. Yeah, stuff you would um, anyone just, would yeah, have just, access to. And I guess he would go to different hardware stores and whatnot. And mm-hmm. Just buying the watches, you'd think. But, you know, anyway. I mean, we'll sock. I mean. He is a traditional police work. It, it, they, it had gotten him no leads anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, I mean, you know, this is a long, we're talking 16 years here now. Yeah. Like we said, he had a long period, 10 years, where he was not even active other than sending letters. But, uh, you know, 16 years this guy was on on the loose. So they want to know why, you know, what's supposed to be the greatest police force in the world is coming up with nothing. Now, since traditional means had not gotten him anywhere, Mm -hmm. this inspector, Howard Finney, He's from the crime lab in New York City. Uh, he decided it was time to try something new, Timmy. Yeah, he was a little progressive. He was like an old-time cop, but uh, he was open to new ideas. He was. So he and his friend Captain Cronin at the Missing Persons Bureau, he asked him if he had any ideas. Now, Cronin suggested a Ouija board. <laughs> um, so these can hurt. Yeah, these two get on a Ouija board. They fool around for about two days. Yeah, I don't think that's true. Okay, well, it could have happened. It could have happened. could have happened. But it didn't. Okay, let's, that's a possibility. Yeah. But that didn't pan out. So Cronin suggested possibly a psychiatrist could work up a profile with Obama, and that profile could be useful in catching him. Now, what's this is... This is uh, a milestone marker in the in the history of crime and catching criminals. Yeah, because they they had it around. Uh, profiling was around then, but it was not really widely used. And what yeah. used, it had been used on a this is probably the most prominent case it had ever been used on up to this point. Yeah, I mean they you know they all, police had always been kind of profiling, but mm-hmm. the the idea of taking your clues and saying this is what the guy is going to be when you find him, right? Um, and this is who you it should was look a, for. It was a new. A uh, new approach. It was a new approach. So, <clears throat> Finney. Now, Finney was a tough, respected guy, and he had to he had to clout to try this crazy idea. Yeah, because I said he was a oh, you know he he was you know kind of an old school cop. Well, but he also had a master's degree in forensic criminology. Right, but I mean, he had the respect of yeah. you know his superiors to try something new because he he, he developed this reputation as you know 
he had he had he had credibility. Yeah, so he didn't. Um, he was able to give this concept a try. Now he has this huge case file under his arms, and Finney and two of his detectives paid a visit to Cronin's friend, this Manhattan criminal psychiatrist named James Brussel. Finney had no idea how this was going to turn out. Okay. I mean, at this point, they're out of options. Really, they don't. You know, unless he screws up, someone sees him. They don't know. What, you know, they're not going to find him. Right. Right. Now, this Brussels is a pretty smart smart guy. He's your typical psychiatrist smoking a pipe. Um, did he have the patches on his... Uh, on he his did. He had the uh, elbow yeah. patches mm-hmm. and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he had been thinking about this Mad Bomber case on his own, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, like most New Yorkers. But he didn't have a case file. You know, he just kind of had his own theories. Right. Um, <clears throat> so he hadn't come up without anything. You know, it did pop in and out of his head. Now, that all changed when Finney came to his office with a case file. Brussel agreed to meet with the inspector as a favor. And uh, now, since he was primarily in private practice, Brussel also served as the assistant commissioner of mental hygiene for the state of New York. Mental hygiene. Yeah, well, that's good. It's so good to have a it's, clean mind. It's Yeah, it's like the devil. She needs She gets hygiene. those not-so-fresh-feeling days. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it permeates to her mind. <laughs> she gets to, yeah. She needs a uh, she, she she needs, needs mental hygiene. She needs them. Yeah, she needs massingale run through her ears <laughs> to try to clean <laughs> out her mind. But uh, but yeah. anyway, Timmy, um, he he had he had gone to conferences for the state of New York mm-hmm. in that position, and he met Captain Cronin, and he'd impressed Captain Cronin. And this guy later on wrote a memoir, um, the case of a crime psychiatrist, and he admitted that he doubted he could be useful to this case at all. He was he was very confident that his profession had its own abilities, but he did not believe that he could add anything that professional de- detectives had not already discovered. He didn't think he could foretell the future. Right. <clears throat> Turns out his self-confidence was, was wrong, misplaced. Um. Now, prior to practice, Brussels had served in the military as the chief of neuropsychiatry at Fort Dix during World War II. Hey, you said Dix. <laughs> Fort Dix. Yeah. And then you should have a fort for Dix. Today. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's where Klinger was up. stationed at in MASH. Oh, that's right. Yeah, before he went to uh, Korea. And then he was at, um, the head of Army neuropsychiatry for the entire Army during the Korean War. And during that time, he'd done count, counterintelligence profile. Worked for the FBI and CID. Okay, so he was. Uh, he, he so he his credentials were pretty solid. Right now, he he also admitted this Captain Finney kind of int- intimidated him. He believed old cop wouldn't settle for anything but solid conclusions and would dismiss the psychiatric profession entirely if if he proved wrong. Now, from the amusement. But I mean, he give it to Finney. I mean, he at least he was open to trying it. You know, but I think, like yeah. you said, but Brussel figured these guys. He thought these guys had already dismissed him, so mm-hmm. he thought, you know, he felt a lot of pressure. And he came up. He studied and studied this case file, and he came up with a profile. And the main conclusion: mm-hmm. the bomber was most certainly mad. He <laughs> <laughs> was batshit crazy. That was a good call there. Yeah. Now, you could. Now, I don't have thirty-eight degrees, Timmy. <laughs> 
But you a guy that keeps blowing up the oyster bar and phone booths and yeah. whatever, I'm going to tell you, he's a little bit crazy. Yeah, he's a little, he's a little unhinged. And <clears throat> I could probably tell you, he probably at some point worked for Con Ed or at least had his electric cut off. <laughs> yeah, had his electric cut. He's, he's had some kind of bad experience with Con Ed, bad agree. interaction with Con Ed. Uh, yeah, I think that was, the, you know, uh, I'm not an expert, but that's what I'd be looking at. Yeah, I think that should be our next job is criminal profile. I think we I think we would do one because when you see stuff on the news yeah. a lot of times do you think that sounds like some brand you do. You know, or Alley down in Australia. Every time I see Oh it, yeah, you know, you know. Every time you hear a so any time I hear of a serial killer yeah. south of the equator. Yeah, I think I think Alley. of Alley. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and you know she's a nice enough lady. Yeah, for a serial killer, she's cool. First, well, even for a normal person, yeah, except yeah, for the fact nice, that she, you know, yeah. got bodies buried in the basement well, and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Now, anyway, now, so, now Celine. Now, see, she. I, I see more of her as a uh, a spree killer. I, I see Celine as a spree killer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She's like a Lizzie Borden. Girl. Yeah, she'll just yeah. go off and take out mm-hmm. a half city block someday. Right. Yeah. She go down to and her book ain't at the bookstore. They're out of it. And yeah. She's like what? She'll tell you, she'll go downtown Detroit and open up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's she look actually. You know what? Do do a lot of our listeners scare you a little bit? A lot actually. A lot actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and we love you. Yeah, we love you, but you're crazy. <laughs> but you're kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, now he has an important. So we're kind of profiling our listeners. Oh right, they came up. He comes up with a profile. He studies okay. this file forever. He comes up with a profile, and his profile is pretty good. Yeah, came up to the following conclusions: Obama was a male because, with few exceptions, uh, historically, Obamas are always male. Well, and also he bombed a men's room a couple of times. Yeah, women that have a hard time running in and out of men's rooms. Yeah. So. Uh, Here's another. Now, now this one was a brilliant work. Unless you're in North Carolina, then then, then <laughs> yeah, you, you can't. <laughs> There's some problems. Yeah, in, a, in a brilliant move of detectivery, mm-hmm. Timmy, um, they just they came up to the conclusion that he had a grudge against Con Edison <laughs> and was wow. likely a former employee. Some real insight there. He believed himself to have been permanently injured by the company and was seeking revenge. This conclusion was obvious from the letters. Mm-hmm. Um, the text, the bomber was a textbook paranoid. He believed that Con Edison and the public at large conspired against him. Well, he probably, he's probably right about Con Ed. Yeah, well, the public at large, once he started blowing people's asses off yeah, in the seats, it was conspiring against him, too. Right. Now, the bomber was middle-aged, probably around 50, because paranoia generally peaks at around age 35, and the bomber had been active for 16 years. Yeah, mine's not peaked yet, but... No, but mine's getting there. Mm-hmm. Mine's getting there. The bomber was neat, meticulous, and skilled at his work, everything from carefully constructed bombs to the neat lettering to the careful planning of the bombs indicated his neatness. Also, paranoids tend to set high standards. That's... Set high standards for themselves, mm-hmm. so as not to open themselves to unwanted criticism. And paranoids hate criticism. Yeah. And have you ever noticed that, like we three do a a podcast together, right. mm-hmm. and uh, just the tiniest little thing to her, it's like, yeah, remember when she stabbed it's me with the letter opener yeah. in the hand? It's very sensitive. And that was just because I said you're not far close enough to the microphone. Yeah. 
Yeah. And she stabbed she's, me with yeah, a... Very sensitive to criticism. Oh, that's yeah. That's for sure. But, she's you know, insecure. and uh, uh, folks with paranoia are hard to treat, too, because they, just, they don't trust you. You know what I mean? Well, actually, they say the most mental illness, the most dangerous of the mentally ill. Mentally ill people typically are not that dangerous. Right. Until you get to the paranoid schizophrenics. Yeah. Um, that's when you get to anybody with a paranoid because they believe that... They're striking first um, to ward off. They're, they're act, everything they do is acting as self-defense because right. they believe people are And it's not them. to say that people who are paranoid schizophrenic are all... No. No, are no, all no violent, not at all. But, but those who are violent tend to be... Tend to be, yeah. And it's kind of like saying... Um, um, and like I said, it's it's hard to... It's hard to tr- they're hard to treat because the, you have to build trust and right. and you just can't it's difficult to it's really hard to build trust with someone who is you know has paranoia and you know this just got me to speaking of paranoia um, because you know I was on the campaign trail and one of the most paranoid guys I ever seen in my life and I mean he was paranoid paranoid crazy paranoid who was that Ted Cruz yeah Ted Cruz tell me you believe he slept with five women. Yeah, I don't know, dude. I don't. I don't know what to think of that whole thing. You know, part of me thinks that there's where smoke, there's fire, but then I can't imagine five women wanting. Well, we know he swallows. Yeah. We've seen that on the debate. We've seen that on the debate, but yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I just I, that just popped into my head with paranoia because he was paranoid all the time. Mm-hmm. He's always looking over his shoulder, watching. His eyes shift all the time. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know about the five women. How are you going to fight five women? Colonel can't even get Trump's a stalker a bit from here. paranoid, too, I think. <laughs> well, I think when you get to that level, they're all paranoid. Yeah, probably so. Because you know what? There's a lot of people out to get you. <laughs> a lot of people really out to get My, you. I had a psych uh, professor who used to say, just because I'm paranoid doesn't, doesn't mean, mean they ain't out to get you. Exactly. That's right. But And, you know, just so these people are paranoid, and a colonel can't even get a stalker. And I'm, know, I'm trying to. How in the world did you? How in the world did you not do well in this election cycle? I wanted. <laughs> well, you know what? It was because I got tired of traveling around, and plus they kept putting me on the same bus with Ted Cruz. Yeah. And he talks incessantly to me. Yeah. And so I got tired of it, and I said, oh, "You know what? If I'd hung in there, it, the choice would be right now: me, Ted Cruz, or Donald Trump yeah, for the Republicans. I think. I think you would. Or me, Hillary, or Bernie for the Democrats. Yeah. How how could I lose? I don't think you could. I mean, pick one that's better than me, Tim. I, you know, I, I think I'd vote for you. Uh, well, I and think I, anybody with the right mind would vote for me. You got uh well, we'll get back into that. Okay. Um. So here, the the bomber was foreign. Mm-hmm. Well, spent a majority of his time with foreign people, much like you do, Timmy. <laughs> when I can. <laughs> when you can. The bomber wrote in stilted formal language bereft of any contemporary slang. He utilized phrases like dastardly deeds. See, now, next time some bomber uses dastardly deeds, because mm-hmm. this damn podcast are going to come yeah. after me. Yeah. So what are you saying there? That I'm, uh, what, did, what, what did they say about his use of language? Um, he utilized, um, it was bereft of any contemporary slang. <laughs> Is so, that me? That's, well, you know, that's like, you know how I, I come in in the morning, I say, yo, dog, what up, G? Yeah. That's contemporary slang. Oh, yeah, that's not okay. Me. Yeah, you got to you gotta get more with the times. Too. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> and he referred to Con Edison as the Con Edison. Mm-hmm. 
when New Yorkers had referred to the utility giant without the V for years. Yeah, it's known as Con Ed, generally. Yeah. So the the continuation of the profile here, Obama had at least a high school education, Timmy, but probably no college. Mm -hmm. The stilted language of the letters and skilled construction of the bombs spoke of self-education. The excellent handwriting indicated at least some formal schooling. Okay. Um, The bomber was a chronic masturbator. (laughs) did not say that. (laughs) Okay. But living with your sisters. Yeah. I was just seeing if the listeners were paying attention. Uh, Yeah, they probably wasn't. (laughs) Okay. Living with your your two unmarried sisters. Unmarried sisters, yeah. There's probably a lot of masturbation going on in there. I would think so. Yeah, well, because here's another one. He was a Slav, probably a Slav and Roman Catholic. Okay. Culturally speaking, Eastern and Central Europeans most often employ bombs as weapons. And yeah. most Slavs are Catholic. Yeah. I wonder if they're, from that stereotype, if they're going back to, like, the uh, anarchist movement, mm-hmm. you know, in the yeah. early 19th century. Which was popular. Yeah, very, and it was all yeah. Eastern Europeans. And, and they blew the hell. They had all kinds of bad yeah, bombs. Uh, yeah, they had bombs on, you know, they bombed, their bombs <clears> went <throat> from Wall Street and, and Chicago. And, but anyway, back to, back to George. So the bomber lived in Connecticut, not New York. Some of the letters have been mailed from Westchester County. And uh, it's just right outside the city. Yeah, that's between Connecticut and New York. And mm-hmm. Connecticut was home to a large community of Eastern and Central Europeans. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of following logic. The the bomber suffered from oh, and I, I never pronounced this word, Timmy. Oedipus, Oedipal complex. Oedipus. Oedipus complex. Mm-hmm. Oedipal complex. Oedipus. Mm-hmm. Um, like most sufferers, he was likely unmarried and lived with a single female relative or relatives that were not his mother. So there, he is theorizing he had there was some kind of problem with his relationship with his mother. He was in love with his mother, basically. He, well, he probably lost his, he probably it. lost his mother young. Mm-hmm. And Doctor Russell made these conclusions based on the phallic construction of the bombs. They were built like penises, Timmy. The bombs. See. Are you making this up? No, it's okay. right here in your your words. And here's the difference. Must have been asleep when I was. <laughs> <laughs> the bombs were like penises. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. As opposed to he the was colonel, spreading his seed. As opposed to the colonel, whose penis is the bomb to me. <laughs> I see. <laughs> or at least was I've been told. Okay. Okay. So anyway, who, but okay. somehow we got through this whole thing, almost through this whole thing with a guy getting on tallywhackers. Yeah, didn't not mentioning. You know, we, we we haven't talked much about penises today. Yeah, but he but he had a foul you know, construction to the one of our listeners sent us a critique of the show, and she was very sweet. She was trying to give us you know some real guidelines on how to make the show better. And one of her suggestions, she talked about the echoing and the sound mm. and all that, but one of her suggestions is to cut out the penis jokes. And I'm like, what are we going to talk about? That's our whole, that's does, the show. Does she not understand it with 13-year-old boys? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, well, penises are always funny. Yes. You, some, are, some funnier than others. <laughs> some are funnier than others, yeah. Rasputin's was funnier than us. Oh, yeah, when they chopped it off, put it in a jar, pickled it. Um, But anyway, the strange and breast-like W's in Obama's otherwise perfect handwriting and the strange slashing and penetration of the movie seats. So this guy was Freudian, it sounds like. Yeah. As far as Finney and the detectives were concerned, these were his most far-fetched and dubious conclusion. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Brussel was very confident in these. 
Mm-hmm. So now here's where the game begins, Timmy. Okay. Finney and his detectives were impressed, despite their doubts. Now, they had drawn some of Dr. Brussels' conclusions themselves through the traditional detecting. Like find, like uh, he had a, a beef against Con Ed. Yeah, that was pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah, the letters kind of give that away. Yeah, and as Brussel developed this profile, he became more and more confident in his conclusions, and that confidence became kind of infectious. And once they had the profile, uh, Brussel said, you know, what we should do with it, there's probably hundreds of men who fit this, but only one bomber. And, and Brussels said, you know, I think you ought to give it to the newspaper and the radio and, and publicize it. Yeah, because remember, he, they, they were, you know, they had told the newspapers to not, to, you know, not to publish this. This guy was just a, a seeking attention. But now they're coming up with strategy. They're going to have to draw him out, right? Yeah. So now Finney, he, did, he was kind of, he wasn't big on this idea. But Russell, Brussels said, you know, I think there's a chance we'll come forward by himself if we handle him right. I think he wants to be found out. Now, Brussels continued to argue with the detectives um, that the bomber wanted publicity and wanted credit for his work. He was outraged by the newspapers not publishing his letters, much like I get when they don't put my letters to the editor in there. Right. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> I wrote a letter to the editor one time because, you know, you do an email now, and mm-hmm. I don't know what it was. It's something stupid. It's about the Reds or something. You know, they printed the damn thing. And it was embarrassing <laughs> as hell because I didn't really think they printed it because you know, I figured they'd get thousands of them. And well, they actually printed it. It was, you know, something on sports. It wasn't even really important. But, it, and I, you know, I never read the newspaper. So people were like, you know, calling me up. Hey, yeah. I saw your letter. Well, I'm reading the letters to the editor one day and I see this one. It's, you know, the uh, free store. Mm hmm. Uh, or not the free store, I'm sorry, the drop-in center. It's, it's a, a, it's a men's shelter. homeless, sh- yeah, homeless shelter. shelter. Um, they were building a cover for a smoking area because it's illegal to smoke indoors in Ohio. Mm-hmm. So they were building this smoking shelter, basically. Mm-hmm. It cost about $300,000 to build this thing. Mm-hmm. And I see this letter to the editor saying how they should not be building this thing because these people... And it gives this list of reasons, and they're logical reasons. And I thought, you heartless son of a bitch. The homeless, <laughs> let them go out and smoke a cigarette once in a while. If they, right. What the hell's wrong with you? And it's saying, well, these are people who clearly do not have a lot of disposable income. So they shouldn't be So smoking. they should not be spending uh, their money on cigarettes. Um, they smoking causes health issues. They probably are not healthy, living the healthiest of lifestyles. The smoking is only hurting them more. So it's you easy to be, be judgmental, spending... I guess, when you're, you know, yeah. when you have access to. So I was about to fire off a response to this thing, mm-hmm. and then I look at it, and it says. T. Walters, Westwood, it was my son Tanner, and he was 11 years old. Now, the policy for the inquiry was that you had to be 13 to publish a letter. He lied and sent the letter in there. And I get back to him, and I was like, what the hell's wrong with you? Let the homeless pennies, let the homeless people have a damn cigarette, would you? He's like, Dad, it's not good for him, and that's when I smoke myself. And he's like, and you should quit smoking, too. I was like, you know what? You should just shut the hell up. Uh, well, he was he's a true West Sider. He is. <laughs> so, anyway, um, <clears throat> so where was I at? So he was outraged that they're not publishing his letter, and he would be further outraged at the idea some clever psychiatrist found him out. So Dr. Brussel predicted that if, in fact, 
anything was wrong with the profile, the bomber would not be able to resist telling the police. And he'd have to go to the media and say that this psychiatrist, Mr. Smarty Pants, was not as smart as he thought. Mm -hmm. So even if the profile was on target, the bomber might be goaded into revealing details that could lead the police to him. Now, Dr. Brussel won the, won the argument despite the fact that Finney believed that the plan would be bring in a million crackpots. Now, as Finney and his detectives left the office, Brussel couldn't resist making one more conclusion about the bomber. A neat, conservative man, he would be wearing the safest and most conservative clothes of the day in the neatest possible way. One more thing, Dr. Brussel's said. Now, I couldn't resist making this conclusion. When you catch him, and I have no doubt that you will, he will be wearing a double-breasted suit. Oh. And after a shocked exclamation from the detectives, he continued, and it will be buttoned. You have to be cautious when you're buying a uh, double-breasted suit. Yeah, you got to make sure you got two breasts. Well, Come on. let's, um, yeah. You get a mastectomy and you, so, you know, you have to throw it away. It's over. Yeah. Now, all the major newspapers, including the Times, published these summaries. Um, now, police, um, as Finney predicted, all these crackpots came forward. Um, additionally, plenty of normally normal civic-minded citizens brought leads to the police. Mm-hmm. Each one had a friend or neighbor that fit that profile, and suddenly, you know, they were convinced that this guy's mm-hmm. my next-door neighbor's a guy blowing up the place. Yeah. Well, um, you would think the Con Ed thing would narrow it down a bit. Well, a Darien, Connecticut commuter told the police about a neighbor who had once worked for Con Edison who had spent some time in mental hospitals for paranoia. This guy was a skilled mechanic, and he was married to a woman 10 years older than himself. The marriage didn't fit the profile, but Brussel followed it through. That was really where it was close, but Brussel knew once he found out he was married, it wasn't him. Mm-hmm. They had so many, so many false leads on this. Um, but... During this time, the bomber gets aggravated. He steps up his attacks and writes more letters. He also called Dr. Brussel directly a feat of cleverness. And he also, I'm sorry, he also called Dr. Brussel directly a feat of cleverness in and of itself since the doctor's number was unlisted. The conversation went as follows. So he's ringing this guy at phone. He's calling Dr. Yeah. Brussel. Hello. Hello. him up. Yes. Ding, ding. Hello. Hello. Is this Dr. Brussel, the psychiatrist? It is. Yes, this is Dr. Brussel. <laughs> this is FP speaking. Keep out of this or you'll be sorry. And then hung up. Now, they couldn't trace the call, but Brussel was pleased. He knew he'd gotten under his skin. Now, meanwhile, Con Edison assigned several of its administrative staff members to go through all the troublesome employee files, much like we have here. Um, for anyone who might fit the complex or fit this um, profile, you why didn't you do that in 1940? I mean, you would have you would have thought, um, <laughs> but this was this was just a they had different filings. It, it was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess you know named, it, it was all on paper files. It wasn't yeah no database. And and remember, Con Ed owned a bunch of other companies. Right. And this was, a, yeah, because he worked for a subsidiary of Con Ed. He didn't work for Con Ed directly. So. Right. Now, a clerk named Alice Kelly, she went through stacks of files, and she came up on a file 
for George Metetsky of Waterbury, Connecticut. He'd worked for Union Electric and Power Company. He fit the profile, so Kelly took a closer look. Metesky had suffered an on-site accident at the plant where he worked. He blamed his subsequent consumption on that accident, a claim that could not be proven. After his disability claim was denied, Metesky had written several angry letters to the company, one promising revenge for the firm's dastardly deeds. Ooh. Did he sign it FPE? Well, he she did. No, that was just in his file. All right, okay. She excitedly brought the file to her supervisor. Her supervisor had been having an affair with her for <laughs> no, quite some time. Okay, no, we'll no. get on to that part of the story yes. later. I think maybe she said that she handed over the file. Well, meanwhile, the, so they got a lead there. So meanwhile, Obama, he just taunting the media and police. Mm-hmm. In response to an open letter in the journal American, Obama gave the details, including dates and places, of the accident that had injured him. In doing so, he made the kind of arrogant slip-up that Dr. Brussel had predicted he would. Obama assumed the records of the accident and claims were long lost in the files of the utility and those files. He didn't know that Alice Kelly, who was sleeping with her supervisor. No, 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 she wasn't. Don't don't defame Miss Kelly. Nah, she long dead. We can't defame yeah. nobody that's dead. Yeah. Back in those days, don't you watch Mad Men? Mad Men? <laughs> they all slept with their They secretaries. all slept with the secretaries. She wouldn't have been working so hard if she wasn't sleeping with the guy and getting some jewelry and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Sounds like coats. a very dedicated employee. She's going through all those files and pull out, you know, looking for a needle in a haystack. Well, she found it. And the dates matched the one that Metesky had given to the newspaper. Now, neighbors, George Metesky, the neighbors didn't know what to make of him. Mm-hmm. He was a dapper. He was a Slav. Mm-hmm. Uh, a dapper Slav. A dapper Slav. <laughs> he said a Slav. A Slavic man <laughs> who lived at uh, on <clears throat> number 17, 4th Street in Waterbury. Um, his two unmarried sisters he didn't appear to work for a living. He was always polite. He was distant. Nobody in the neighborhood knew anything about him. Local children feared him and called his house the crazy house, despite there being yeah, little or no evidence of madness. Little kids know. Yeah. Little <laughs> kids know. Pretty good diagnosing. Um, he attended St. Patrick's Church, um, but that didn't, and he made a lot of other trips, but people wanted, and people wondered where he went. And still others wondered what he made in his workshop at all hours of the day or mm-hmm. night. Busy for a man with no job. Yeah. Now, around the same time as the newspapers began to publicize Dr. Brussel's profile of the Mad Bomber, the neighbors noticed a change in Metesky. He seemed friendlier and even talkative at times. Helped the local boy fix his model airplane. And the neighborhood children were no longer afraid of him. He was getting the attention that he wanted. Yeah, people in the neighborhood remarked to one another that they maybe they had misjudged his crazy ass. No. Had they known that George Metesky had once worked for Con Edison, they might have made the connection between him and Obama. They might have been suspicious as the police stopped by number 17 on a routine house-to-house check regarding an automobile accident and did not stop at any other houses. <laughs> <laughs> so, house house check only went to one house. Yes, yeah, just went to one house. <laughs> now, a few nights later, the neighbors were shocked when police came and arrested Metesky. Dressed in his bathroom, he pleasantly and politely confessed to being the bomber. 
he revealed that FP stood for fair play. Fair play. That's all he wanted, fair play. Police uh, requested that McKeskey put on some clothes, and he obliged. What did he put on, Colonel? He put on a double-breasted suit. Buttoned up, Timmy. (laughs) So the profile were pretty accurate. It was very accurate. Now, this was a huge, huge, huge feather in Finney's cap. Uh, He continued his stellar career and later became a well-known corruption buster, Timmy. Very good. Um, Now, this case catapulted Dr. Russell to fame. He was often called in as a consultant on one of the nation's most... Uh, on the nation's most troubling unsolved cases. Um, He had different degrees of success. He did the Wiley murders, which Mm -hmm. we could do sometime. Mm -hmm. Is that Wiley Coyote? Uh, No, this was a different one. Um, Wiley Coyote actually never murdered anybody. He just had a lot of plans for it. He had a lot of assault. A lot of of attempted aggravated murder. Yeah. Well, you know, his problem was he always got his material, bomb-making material from Acme. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, give him a bad name. He really needed to go to a different company after a while. Um, He did the Sunday Bomber, and most notably, most notably the case of Watson Strangler, which one day we're going to have to do because you know this man, I joke about this, but you know this man, Albert Salvo, he would masturbate 10 times a day. Yeah, I'm not sure he. I'm not sure he was guilty. I don't. I think there's some doubt with it. There's some doubt as yeah whether he's guilty, but he, um, by his own admission, masturbated ten times a day. That's ah, just bragging. He's <laughs> just bragging. I mean, he'd get blisters and calluses oh, yeah. at some point. Yeah. Um, but his his work changed the way police uh, catch criminals. There's a lot of tissue paper too. <laughs> a lot of, well, a lot sock, of tube socks. Sock, yeah. Yeah, who, who left that tube sock under here again? Standing up by itself, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Step right into it. Now, George Metesky, who fit the profile in every detail, was found insane and committed to the asylum for the criminally insane. As is the case with most acute paranoids, he was unresponsive to treatment, believing psychiatrists were part of the conspiracy against him. He proved to be a model patient and spent much of his time trying to blow up the hospital. <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> trying to legally win his release. They're, and they were confounded when they found letters from FP. Yeah. <laughs> Caught in a profile. Figuring out who's bombing the men's yeah. room at the mental hospital. <laughs> so Dr. Brussel... Um, Used to visit him occasionally. Brussel always found him talkative and charming. Metesky often pointed out that he purposefully, purposefully constructed his bombs not to kill anyone. Brussel once asked him directly if he thought he was crazy. Metesky smiled politely and said, nope. So Metesky's actions went on to inspire new criminals. Investigators believed that both the Unabomber and the Zodiac Killer took inspiration from the Mad Bomber. By writing to mm-hmm. the newspapers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Upon his release from the crazy place, Metesky took up residence in his family's house. He died in 1994 at the age of 90s. His death did not even make the newspapers, Tim. Mm. And if you see pictures of him, like I said, his effect is really strange. He's always got this bright smile on his face. Mm-hmm. And he was loving the attention. And, I, you know, he, he probably did 
make the bombs so it won't hurt people. I mean, because you, you would think out of 33 bombs, you would kill somebody. Unless he, unless he was a really poor mad bomber. He, you know what? He but I mean, he, unless he was just a little aggravated bomber. He wasn't a yeah. mad, mad bomber. Right. I mean, he was but just he a little was, pissed off. At yeah. But he put him in places where there was a lot of foot traffic. So, yeah, who knows? So, um, Colonel, where can people find us? Well, Timmy, no, we're not done here, Timmy. <laughs> we're going to wrap this thing We have up. done this thing under protest. And okay. I'm, uh, what I'm going to do, Timmy, mm-hmm. is I'm going to create a profile. Okay. Just like uh, our doctor here did uh-huh. of Rudebaker. Okay. Okay. Like Dr. Brussels did. Does, he, like does Rudy wear a... Uh, double-breasted suit. Uh, Rudy does, he does wear clothes because I've seen him in clothes. <laughs> Rudy just wears a Broncos and a Reds jersey. Uh, okay. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put together a profile of the Rudabaker. Okay. Um, and I think our, our listeners, listeners, I'm gonna apologize to you now because you've been cheated. You've been cheated. I mean, we could have had a, a long story about the Rudabaker. And his many daring feats and bravery. I mean, he's he was, who's the guy we did on World War One that killed all the Germans? That, uh, he's the Alvin York adult. Uh, Alvin Rudy. York, yeah. Rudy is okay. And, well, uh, we'll talk about him in a future podcast. So he's been he's been cheated, and listeners, your voices they've been dismissed. Yeah, they've been dismissed. They've, they've been disfranchised. Um, Colonel, where can people find us? Well, you know the the best place to find us is on iTunes. Find yeah. us on iTunes. Leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also find us um, two places on Facebook. You can find us on the History Dweebs page. Mm-hmm. Now, if you like to talk and you like to get involved in conversations, the History Dweebs podcast page. Yeah, just ask. Um, it's a group. It's a group. Just ask to join. We let pretty much we let anybody. Oh, in. Yeah. We let Scotty J in, so we let anybody <laughs> in. Um, we yeah. let we, have, we even we let some pretty, of those Tim Brandy people in. Yes, uh, we let them all. Anyone that wants to join, we're happy to have you. So just send us, just uh, look us up, History Dreams, the podcast on yeah. Facebook group, and, I, and you can find us on Libsyn. But I don't know if anybody really uses that. You know what? Uh, we only get about ten percent. No, we only get about twenty percent of our listeners on iTunes. Most of them are from our Facebook page, all right. which is cool. We love that you listen to us wherever, but. We'd love to build up. If you have a choice, listen to us on from iTunes because mm-hmm. then we can begin in that, you know, the, build our numbers on iTunes up a little bit. But we have tons of listeners, and we'd probably be in the top 100 if we, I don't know. I don't know how many you need to be in the top 100. But I think we'd be, we would, if all of our downloads came from iTunes, we would be, uh, you know, higher on their list. But, um, you know, we don't care. Wherever you listen to us, is fine. But Wherever you, you listen, just listen. Yeah, we're just yeah. glad you're listening. So, um, that's where you can find us. You can find us on Twitter. Mm-hmm. At HistoryDweebs1. Do we tweet much? We do. We tweet out. Uh, we don't tweet much, but we tweet every episode and... Um, you know, I, tw- I, I tweet some. Colonel doesn't have a Twitter. The, the Colonel yeah. uses Twitter now and again. Yeah, well, you need to tweet more. Um, uh, Elise is demanding that we do Sam Cooke. Uh, we will try to get to Sam Cooke uh, sometime. We have, uh, we'll have. we try to do him coming up. Anyway, that's, let's wrap this up. we got to get out of here. Uh, Colonel, any final thoughts? Um, no, I just think he was a poor bomber for, you know, he was he was just a little, he was a, he was a peaked bomber. He was yeah. a little... I think it was attention getting and a uh, little odd man. Look at his pictures. We yeah, he's a lot of pictures on both pages. Yeah, we'll post them. And we also need to and, and go to the History Dweeb's Facebook or the podcast page. Um, you will see 
we have an added bonus for our listeners. Mm-hmm. There's a picture of Rudy Baker as a puppy. Yeah, I saw on it on the page. Yes. So, um, yes, so that Rudy's make getting his props. Yeah, he gets them. So that's where you can find us. Um, and, and listeners, if you feel a little bit cleaner, you feel a little happier, you feel a little bit more joy in your hearts, you feel where is this going? More righteous. Well, it's because the devil wasn't here. Oh yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. why she'll that's be back. Yeah, her, she'll be back. Her evil presence will will be. Well, back. it's Easter. You know what? It's yeah. Easter. Yeah. You know what happens a week after Easter? What's that? The devil has risen. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. devil has risen. Yeah. So. Zombie Brandy will be joining us. <laughs> yes. In a couple, a couple more days. So, anyway, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you all again next time on History. Have Joys. a good day, listeners. Bye bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.